You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 34, Gladys Hensley, Janice Dickinson, and Geraldine Toohey. It was 1986. 62-year-old Gladys Hensley lived at the Parkview Terrace Senior Living Facility at 255 High Street near Skinner Butte Park and the Willamette River in Eugene, Oregon. This was a large facility operated by the Lane County Housing Authority, so the rents for the 150 units were affordable for social seniors who wanted the independence of living on their own, but the safety and communal feel of a residential facility. Gladys was personal friends with the facility's manager, who, on Thursday, June 5th, realized that the friendly and gregarious tenant hadn't been seen in quite some time. The manager knocked on the door of Gladys's unit but received no response. The manager had a key, though, and cautiously opened the door to Gladys's apartment around 2.40 p.m. The TV in the apartment was on, the lights were on too, but other than the sound from the television, it was quiet. The manager was, sadly, trained to deal with seniors who had befallen accidents and even death, but this was no accident or sudden death from natural causes. Gladys lay on the floor. She was nude from the waist down, beaten and bloodied. She had clearly been there for some time. The manager called 911 at 2.42 p.m., Eugene police and Eugene fire paramedics responded to the scene, but there was nothing they could do for Gladys, who was clearly dead. Not only that, but she had visible injuries that indicated that she was the victim of a homicide. The unit was sealed off, other residents were told to stay in their rooms, and the investigation began. An autopsy performed on Gladys found that she died from a single stab wound. She also bore marks from manual strangulation and had bruises to her body that indicated that she had been beaten. None of this was revealed early on, though. While police informed the public that they were dealing with a homicide, they kept the cause of death under wraps as holdback information in the event that a suspect came to light. The time of death was believed to be in the early hours of June 4th. By the time the manager found her, Gladys had been dead for 36 hours or more. The medical examiner also determined that Gladys had been sexually assaulted, and a rape kit was done and vaginal swabs containing semen were placed in evidence. Let's talk a little bit about 62-year-old Gladys. Gladys May Hensley had lived in the Parkview facility for 16 years since 1970. This means that she moved into the facility when she was still in her 40s. She needed the subsidized housing as it was all she could afford. 
Gladys had worked as part of the cleaning crew at Sacred Heart General Hospital for years. Her son also lived in the area, and her sister lived in Portland. Police discovered that Gladys had returned just a week earlier from spending a month in the Portland area with her relatives. But, as we shall see, none of them had any inkling about who could have so brutally murdered their loved one. Fifteen Eugene Police Department officers, detectives, and crime scene techs arrived at Gladys's unit and started processing the scene. Usually this is where I say there was no sign of forced entry, but here there was. Gladys's unit was on the first floor of the facility, the ground floor. The first thing detectives noticed was that the screen on one of Gladys's bedroom windows, which faced busy High Street, had been cut. The window was unlocked and open, although the curtains were closed. Investigators wondered whether the killer had closed the drapes to keep anyone from looking in the window while he went about his business inside. Crime scene techs dusted the window screen, latch, and sill for prints, along with various areas of the apartment. They also found shoe prints on the soft ground outside the window with the cut screen, and took photos and impressions so they could preserve the prints in evidence. The same shoe prints were visible inside the apartment. It became clear that whoever had killed Gladys had stood in the shrubbery outside her window watching her, which means that the drapes were probably open at the time. Police weren't able to find anyone who recalled seeing Gladys for a couple of days. In fact, they talked to her close friend Joe, who also lived in the facility, and he told them he hadn't seen Gladys since Tuesday the 3rd. That meshed with the coroner's finding that Gladys had been killed in the early hours of the 4th, but it meant that there was a very large window of opportunity for Gladys's killer to get away, more than 36 hours. Detectives were left trying to piece together clues as to the killer's identity and motive from the scene, and they were quick to state that burglary was a factor. There was evidence in Gladys's apartment that some of her things had been taken. I don't know if this was because her jewelry box was rifled through or her silverware was disturbed or perhaps jewelry was removed from her person. Police did say that her purse remained in the unit and they couldn't tell whether any money had been taken from it. There had been another recent break-in at the Parkview facility that aroused the interest of the investigators. On May 26th, so just a week or so earlier, another ground-floor unit across from Gladys's had been broken into via a cut screen on an unlocked rear window. The resident wasn't home, but the intruder stole some jewelry and set the place on fire. For obvious reasons, police suspected that the two incidents might be related. Perhaps Gladys just had the misfortune to be home when the guy struck at her place. Since there was evidence in her unit that burglary was the intent, police had to consider the two cases connected. When police canvassed the residents, they received multiple reports of suspicious activities and prowlers in or near the complex since the 1st of May. One resident of Parkview mentioned that she had found a, quote, hobo sleeping in the facility's laundry room. There were also reports from residents that there was a man in a vehicle parked outside the complex in recent days. All of this was enough to unnerve the elderly residents used to a more serene quotidian existence. But then something else happened that put concerns about burglary on the back burner. Just two weeks after Gladys's murder, on Thursday the 19th of June, an auto mechanic named John Nelson was in the rear parking lot of the car dealership where he worked, the Williams Wilson Honda dealer, at 20 Coburg Road. The dealership was nestled on a triangle of land between that road and busy I-105. A narrow and quite steep bank 
punctuated by mature trees, led from the highway above down to the roadway circling the dealership and the parking lot lined with Hondas. Under a cottonwood tree on the hillside, about 20 feet from the edge of the parking lot, Nelson saw something. What looked like a boot caught his eye. Looking more closely, he had the fright of his life. The naked body of a young woman lay under the tree, face up and staring into the branches above her. Blood was all over her and the grassy bank. She lay outside in broad daylight in a very public place, and she was quite dead. There was no identification on the woman's body or anywhere on the scene, so police, summoned by the mechanic at 4.23 p.m., had no idea who she was. They stated that they needed the public's help to identify her and released an estimate that she was between 18 and 25 years old, she was white, about 5 foot 3 inches, of slender build, with straight chestnut hair and a mole on her chin. Investigators at the scene took in the blood and the body, which was clearly the result of a homicide. Signs of a scuffle and the copious amount of blood on the ground told them that the woman had been killed right there where she lay. This was mind-boggling because it was hardly a private setting. The body lay near the I-105 guardrail, up the bank from a dumpster maintained by the dealership. She would not have been visible from the highway, but clearly she was visible to people frequenting the Honda dealer. If the body had been put into the dumpster, it might never have been found. The frenzied scene and the casual discarding of the corpse told detectives that they had a disorganized and immature killer on their hands. Items of the victim's clothing lay on the ground near her body. They included a yellow and black plaid shirt, blue pants, maroon calf-length boots, and a brown jacket. She was found with a ring still on her right ring finger. It was a serpent design that wrapped twice around the digit. On Thursday night, local news stations broadcasted a news flash about the unidentified female body found on Coburg Road. Police were asking for information about who she could be. The reporters shared the description of the victim and the clothing found near her body. As a result of the description of the yellow and black blouse and the maroon boots, two calls came in to the Eugene police. One was from a friend, and one was from the victim's mother. Cecilia Kruckman identified the dead woman as her daughter, 33-year-old Janice Marie Dickinson. Cecilia had last seen Janice on Wednesday, June 18th, around 9 p.m., leaving the mobile home they shared, located at 1748 Inland Way in Springfield. Janice was wearing the boots and the black and yellow shirt when she left. Cecilia told the police her daughter's sad story. Janice was a Eugene native, one of seven children born to her parents. She was divorced and the mother of a 10-year-old boy who lived in Portland. Janice had attended community college to study voice and worked as a sander at a wood products firm until she began hearing voices in 1982. She was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and had lived with her mom, Cecilia, for the past three years. Janice worked some short-term jobs in a janitorial service and at a nursing home. As long as she stayed on her medication, she was able to lead a somewhat normal life. She was quiet, preferring to listen to music and take care of her pet gerbils. Janice owned a car but had a suspended license after repeated car accidents, so she was prone to hitchhiking. It was common for her to walk places or thumb rides. She was seen countless times by neighbors walking with her headphones on. She had often left the small home she and her mom shared and walked the mile up South 2nd Street to the city center. 
Her mom told the register guard that she had been afraid for years that something like this would happen to her daughter because of her mental illness and the erratic and spontaneous behavior it sometimes caused, and because Janice was overly friendly and trusting towards strangers. She did not have a boyfriend and hadn't seen her son in over a year. On the night Janice vanished, Cecilia told police, her daughter left the mobile home after 9 p.m., and her mom wasn't sure if she was heading to her car or walking. As I said, she was not supposed to be driving and was used to walking places. Detectives examined Janice's Datsun, which was a car company that was remade into Nissan some decades ago, still parked outside the Inland Way house. There was no indication that it had been driven by anyone else. Detectives released the victim's identity to the public, but were stumped as to any suspects and to motive. Again, Sergeant Klein said, quote, It could be anything from robbery to sexual assault. We just don't know. Janice's mom was the one who told police what time Janice left the house that night. The question was how she got from her home to the car dealership where she was found, a distance of about five and a half miles. Police started asking around at businesses in the area and apparently received reports that Janice may have been seen on the Willamette River bike path. This was an area that was populated by what the local contemporary papers call transients, using that term to denote an unsavory type. Eugene police started rounding up and questioning area transients, trying to root out information about the murder. They wrote up a couple tickets for public intoxication, but didn't dig up anything helpful about the homicide. An autopsy determined that Janice had been stabbed to death. Her body bore injuries that indicated she had been severely beaten, and marks on her neck told the ME that she had been strangled as well. She had also been sexually assaulted. The medical examiner estimated that she had been dead less than 48 hours. Detectives interviewed all the employees of Williams Wilson Honda, but no one reported seeing anything or hearing anything odd. Of course, the highway noise was quite significant and could have drowned out any screams or shouts. From the position of the body so close to the highway, it would seem that detectives should consider that the woman had been dumped out of a passing vehicle. But they noted the blood on the ground and also that it did not appear the body had slid or rolled down to where she lay. Police believed that the woman must have been walking nearby when she was accosted, and either she ran into the copse of trees on the slope or she was carried there and assaulted. The trees would have shielded the attack from view by passing motorists, and it was almost certainly dark out when Janice was killed, so the killer had the cover of night working to his benefit. One thing that seemed most significant to detectives, however, was the temporal and geographic proximity to the murder two weeks earlier of Gladys Hensley. The Parkview Terrace retirement home was a mere 10 blocks from the car dealership, and that wasn't the only parallel between the two cases. This was not revealed at the time, but both women had been beaten, stabbed, and choked. Of course, there were glaring dissimilarities in the crimes as well. One victim was a young woman, assaulted and murdered outdoors. The other victim was an older woman, assaulted and murdered in her own apartment. But the similarities were too significant to ignore, and by June 21st, a headline in the register guard blared, Two slayings could be related. Detective Sergeant Mike Klein was quoted in the article saying, There's too many things coming close together on this thing. We're looking at them closely. They are similar in nature. Investigators, noting the substantial amount of blood at the scene of Janice's slaying, appealed to the public to call in reports of anyone they might have seen on Wednesday night into Thursday morning whose clothes had lots of blood on them. 
And they warn the public living in, working in, or frequenting the Ferry Street Bridge neighborhood to take extra precautions. Two vicious murders within two weeks involving normal, peaceful residents were enough to set the community on edge. Police asked that anything suspicious be reported immediately. Requests for tips did result in some helpful information being called in. For example, one caller told the police that the caller saw Janice walking on Wednesday night around 10.30 p.m. on South 2nd Street in Springfield. Remember, she had left her house at 9, and South 2nd Street was a regular route for her to take. Her body was found Thursday afternoon, and no one at the car dealership had seen anything. The narrowing of the window of time was sufficient for Detective Klein to state publicly, quote, We are quite confident that the death took place sometime prior to the daylight hours, possibly within a few hours of sunrise. Interviews with other locals who knew Janice told police that she had been last seen walking near Alton Baker Park, where she had stopped and chatted with people she recognized from the park scene. Police continued to question transients living in Skinner Butte and Alton Baker Parks, clearly suspicious of these rootless types pervasively present in the area. Gladys and Janice's cases were worked hard by Eugene police. It was hard to believe that the brazen murders, one by an intruder climbing in a window facing a well-traveled street, and one in a very public locale, were going to remain unsolved. How had no one seen or heard anything? But of course, police weren't really sure whether the cases were related or not, whether they were seeking separate perpetrators or the same man attacking quite different victims. Despite numerous calls and tips, police ran into a brick wall early in each case. In late June, the EPD brought in Pierce Brooks, a former Eugene chief of police and homicide expert who had been consulted in the Atlanta child killings case and the Green River serial killer case. Police were more inclined to believe the Hensley and Dickinson cases related than not, and they brought in Brooks to see if he concurred. They also compared notes with the Oregon State Police, the Lane County Sheriff's Office, and the Springfield Police Department. Nearly two years passed before another murder. On Sunday morning, February 28, 1988, a woman arrived at the home of her new friend Geraldine to escort her to church. 73-year-old Jerry, as she was called, lived alone in a small house at 5470 Franklin Boulevard in Glenwood. Her friend named Katrina arrived at the house at just after 9 a.m. and knocked on the front door, but no one opened it. She was expecting Jerry, dressed up proper for the Sunday service, to greet her at the door, but it remained closed. Katrina bent down and peered into the gap between the curtain on the front door glass and the door frame, and she saw a frightful sight. The elderly woman lay on the living room floor, face down, nude from the waist down, with clothing strewn about her. Katrina, who had her two small children in the car, drove to the nearby Sunny's gas station and called 911. Medics from the Goshen Fire Department were dispatched to the Franklin Boulevard home just after 9.15 a.m. The first one, Ron Rogers, arrived before Katrina even got back to the house. While the front door was locked, Ron had no trouble entering the home, as the back door had been broken in and was standing wide open. The medic determined that the woman on the floor, determined to be the homeowner, Geraldine Tuohy, was dead. EMTs saw immediately that this was no accident or natural death. The elderly woman had been stripped half-naked and murdered, a bloody knife still stuck through her neck. 
An autopsy on Jerry confirmed that she was the victim of a homicide, Lane County's first, in 1988. She had suffered three stab wounds, one on her left side just below the stomach, one in her chest below the left breast, and one in her neck, where the large knife was still embedded. The blade was so large and long that it had gone all the way through the victim's neck and the tip penetrated her opposite shoulder. Based on bruises and marks on Jerry's neck, the medical examiner surmised that the killer had manually strangled her, but then finished her off quickly by burying the knife in her neck. She had also been beaten in the face with the suspect's fists. Her eye was swollen and her mouth was bruised. And she had been raped. A sexual assault kit was performed and vaginal swabs containing sperm were placed into evidence. Hairs found clutched in her fist were also collected, as were pubic hair combings, fibers found embedded in the stab wounds, tape lifts from her throat, fingernail scrapings, and blood samples. Geraldine Toohey was about as far from the typical murder victim as you can get. The elderly divorcee had retired seven years earlier from a 25-year file clerk position at the Lane County Tax Assessor's Office. She also taught Sunday school to preschoolers and had helped run the nursery at Trinity Baptist Church in Springfield for 33 years. She just loved kids. She had two of her own, but they were grown. Her son Fred lived in Montana, and her daughter Beverly had lived with Jerry until the previous December, but had since moved to her own place in Eugene. Jerry had divorced decades earlier, and her ex-husband had passed away in 1971. She was very close with her sister Christine, who also lived in the area and attended the same church as Jerry. Jerry was beloved by her fellow church members, who described her as a very caring person who thought little about herself and instead worked to help others. Her brutal murder was unthinkable to the parishioners and her friends and family. There doesn't seem to have been any question that the killing could have been done by someone who was in Jerry's life. She had no drama, lived a quiet, simple, charitable existence, and was universally loved by those with whom she surrounded herself. To understand the investigation into this case, we need to get a clear picture of the location where the murder occurred. Jerry's house on Franklin Boulevard was situated in a quite isolated, hilly area south of Eugene. 100 yards east of the house is Interstate 5, and on the other side is the Willamette River and the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks. It was not an area with any pedestrian traffic of note. While Franklin Boulevard is a very busy road, Jerry's house was set back about 50 yards from the roadway. And the very modest house did not appear from the outside to be one that would contain lots of valuables. Jerry had also lived there for 45 years with no trouble. In other words, it was an odd target for a break-in. But a break-in there was, and it had been planned and executed with diabolical precision. After Katrina discovered Jerry's body and called 911, she returned to the house and watched the emergency personnel at work. She was soon joined by Jerry's sister Christine, and they waited outside the house because police wanted to speak to both of them. Soon, Jerry's daughter Beverly showed up as well, called by the neighbors Tony and John Holliday. She joined her Aunt Christine in crying as police informed them that Jerry had been the victim of a brutal homicide. Christine and Beverly helped police narrow down the timeline of Jerry's murder. Beverly, her daughter, told police that she had last seen her mother on Friday night when Bev had driven Jerry and her friend Jesse to the Lane Federal Credit Union banquet at the Black Angus. Jerry wasn't allowed to drive anymore after two car accidents caused by her falling asleep at the wheel. After the dinner, 
Bev picked up the two elderly women, drove Jessie home, and then dropped Jerry at her house. This was around 10.30 p.m. On Saturday, no one knew what Jerry did all day. The bus she sometimes took didn't run on weekends, so it's not thought that she went anywhere. But it turned out that she did have an interaction with someone. On Saturday morning, a woman named Katrina had been driving by Jerry's house on Franklin Boulevard when her car broke down. Katrina knocked on the door of the nearest home, Jerry's, and asked to use the phone. Jerry allowed her to and also gave her 65 cents to take the bus to a mechanic shop. But when Katrina went back outside, a passerby in a pickup helped her start her car. She drove off to work. After her shift, Katrina drove back to Jerry's to repay her the 65 cents, and she and Jerry started chatting. Katrina was also an avid churchgoer, but her church did not have a Sunday school. After talking with Jerry, Katrina offered to take Jerry to church the next day, Sunday, and enroll her kids in Jerry's Sunday school class. Jerry eagerly agreed. The next time Katrina saw Jerry, it was Sunday morning, and Jerry was lying on her living room floor dead. On Saturday evening, Jerry's friend Bill had called her at home and told her that he couldn't take her to church the next day as planned. That's okay, said Jerry. I have a ride from my new friend Katrina. This phone call took place around 7.10 p.m. At 7.30, Jerry got on the phone with her sister Christine. They had been chatting about 45 minutes when the line started making some weird clicking sounds. Just as Jerry was telling Christine that she didn't need a ride to church the next morning, suddenly the call got cut off. Christine tried to call back from a different phone thinking that her phone was the problem, but there was no answer at her sister's place. This wasn't as odd as it sounds, Christine told police. Jerry was very hard of hearing, even wearing a hearing aid, and often did not hear the phone when it rang. So Christine assumed that her sister was just fine watching TV or puttering around the house. She would see her at church the next morning, she thought. But she didn't. When Christine arrived at church on Sunday, her sister wasn't there. Thinking her ride must have fallen through, Christine got in her car and drove over to Jerry's house around 9.30 a.m. As she approached, she saw all the police cars and the ambulance. As we know, it wasn't good news. Police had some shocking news for Jerry's family. They knew why that phone call with Christine had ended so abruptly the night before. Someone had cut the phone wires outside the house. He had also disabled the wiring for Jerry's new CB radio from outside the home. Her daughter Bev had had the CB installed so she could participate in the Neighborhood Watch program. He cut the wires to that as well as the phone, and then... The intruder smashed in a small pane window on the back door and reached his arm through to unlock the door. Somehow the lock jammed, though, so he had to break the door down using his weight. He attacked Jerry in the living room, where he sexually assaulted and killed her on the floor. Investigators roped off the area around the house and started processing Jerry's home. Based on the timeline of Jerry's interrupted phone call with Christine, they believed that an intruder broke down the back door sometime around 8 p.m. on Saturday. They found that the light bulb on the back porch had been unscrewed, so it would no longer illuminate the area outside the door. When the intruder broke down the door, probably with his shoulder, he did so so forcefully that the strike plate and part of the door frame was found nine feet away across the kitchen. As for the scene in the living room where Jerry was found, Detectives' handwritten notes indicate that there was not much evidence of a struggle. It made me wonder exactly how much struggle a woman in her 70s would be able to put up against a young, determined male attacker. 
Based on the evidence at the scene, it was pretty clear that the intruder broke down the back door and charged Jerry in the living room. She was likely watching TV after her phone call to her sister ended abruptly. Here's what the scene looked like when Jerry was found. Jerry lay face down on the carpet. Her right arm was underneath her. Her body was already cold. Her upper body was covered with a blanket, but her lower body was exposed. Her jeans and underwear lay on the ground nearby, one slipper tangled in the jean hem, and her pantyhose were around her ankles along with her socks. She was wearing two pairs. Her floral print blouse had been ripped open and the buttons spilled onto the ground. Her bra was pushed down onto her stomach. Her other slipper, glasses, and hearing aid lay on the living room floor near her body. They must have gotten knocked or ripped off her during the attack. The living room and kitchen lights were on. Several of the kitchen drawers were found standing open. The detectives surmised that the intruder had waylaid Jerry in the living room, attacking her and knocking her out with blows, and then ransacked the kitchen for a weapon. He chose the nine-and-a-half-inch wooden-handled knife because it was in a sheath, and he probably assumed it was the sharpest one in the house. As for the motive, the police intake form has two boxes checked, one sexual-related and two cold-blooded no reason. The sexual assault could have been motivation enough, and perhaps the intruder just liked to kill. But it did look as though the suspect had also robbed Jerry. Her purse sat on a kitchen chair, and her billfold, empty of cash, lay on the kitchen floor. Investigators noted that whoever had broken in had left footprints in the soil around the back porch and near the exterior wall where the phone lines were cut. It was evident that whoever cut the lines knew what he was doing. He sliced the rubber coating off and cut the wire core to both the phone and the CB, but not the cable TV wire. They also noticed that a window appeared to have been tampered with. Finding it hard to open, the suspect had evidently decided to move on to the flimsy back door. Two cigarette butts, one Cambridge brand and the other unmarked, were also collected and seven latent prints were found on the rear window. But it seemed that the suspect had donned gloves after he had broken in, and they knew where he had gotten them. The right glove from a pair of gloves that belonged to Jerry's daughter Beverly and that was kept in the laundry room off the kitchen was missing. The other was found next to her body. The investigators collected plaster casts and photos of the shoe prints, which were thought to have come from a specific kind of tennis shoe. And they also collected anything they suspected the suspect might have touched, the cigarette butts, the wooden window frame, the light bulb, the telephone and CB cables, Jerry's wallet and purse, the shards of glass from the broken back door window pane, the knife and its sheath, a kitchen knife and a spoon from one of the drawers, the five buttons from Jerry's blouse, which were scattered throughout the living room, and all her other clothing and personal items on the floor. About 20 state police officers were involved in the investigation, with some scrutinizing the hills and brushy areas surrounding the house for clues and others canvassing the neighbors. Within an hour of Jerry being discovered, police were knocking on the door of Jerry's closest neighbors, John and Tony Holliday. Neither of them had noticed anything unusual on Saturday night, but they didn't live that close to Jerry's house. It was 200 yards between their homes. John did tell police that there was a transient problem in the area. Jerry's house was located right near the interstate, and the neighbors said that hitchhikers and transients were a constant menace. A state police spokesman acknowledged that transients were a problem in the area and that there had been a rash of recent burglaries and thefts reported along Franklin Boulevard. 
And indeed, officers photographing the areas around Jerry's house noted transients in the wooden area behind her home. They rounded them up and started field interrogations. On Sunday afternoon, investigators brought in a police tracking dog from the Eugene PD. The dog started at the house and seemed to pick up a fresh scent and followed it south along the Willamette River for close to two hours, but after that it led police nowhere. Several witnesses came forward who reported seeing various men and a vehicle outside Jerry's home. One witness, who was deemed unreliable because he was a heroin addict, told police he saw a man dressed in camouflage gear run out of Jerry's driveway and get in a beat-up old VW van and drive off. This was around 9.45 or 10 p.m. on the night of the murder. The guy he saw was about 5 foot 9 and white with collar-length hair. Note that this description matches the sketch that would later be released of the suspect and the timing fits. Four other witnesses all said that there was a newer model car parked outside Jerry's house across Franklin Boulevard and facing north on the evening of the murder. Whether any of these sightings were the person who killed Jerry has never been determined. On March 16th, the Oregon State Police released a suspect sketch to the local papers. It was very detailed. It depicted what the papers called a dirty, scruffy, skinny white man. He had a long face, prominent cheekbones, a cleft chin, heavy brows, and a head of bushy, dark hair that stuck up. He was described as maybe five foot nine in his 20s or early 30s with bad teeth. He was wearing Levi's, a t-shirt, plaid overshirt, a dark green thigh-length overcoat, and was carrying a tan backpack. Many tips were called in after this sketch was released, but they went nowhere. So who was the witness who was able to give police such a detailed description of the suspect? This was an avenue of the investigation that police kept under wraps. They told the public that multiple people had reported seeing the man in the sketch on Jerry's property the night before she was slain. This wasn't the whole truth. They had a much more concrete sighting than that to base the sketch on. It turned out that investigators learned that at the Lane Credit Union banquet Jerry had attended at the Black Angus on Friday night, all the attendees had been given scratch tickets as a door prize. They were part of the Money Game Scratch-Off, and all were from pack number 1604845. The ticket numbers handed out at the banquet ranged from number 95 to number 246. Okay, so what? Well, Jerry's friend Jesse's ticket had been a $5 winner. This is worth about $17 in today's money. Not a lot, but enough that Jerry's tablemates and friend Jesse told police that Jerry had placed the ticket in her wallet and intended to cash it for Jesse, as she often took the bus to the food warehouse store where it could be redeemed. The lottery ticket was not in Jerry's wallet when it was found on the kitchen floor after her murder. And since police knew she had not gone anywhere on Saturday, they surmised that the suspect had stolen it and intended to cash it in. Okay, so how to find a single redeemed scratch-off ticket? Well, the manufacturer, Webcraft Games in New Jersey, was able to tell police that the winning $5 tickets were numbers 114, 141, 145, 156, 188, 219, and 226. And this particular scratch-off game was customized to one particular retailer. The tickets could be redeemed only at the local food warehouse store where the roll had initially been purchased. So, detectives set about trying to figure out who had redeemed the seven winning tickets. 
One of them was the ticket that had been taken from Jerry's wallet, and they found it. The other six tickets all had the name and address of the winning person on the back filled out by them when they redeemed the ticket. The ticket from Jerry's wallet was blank, sadly, but the clerk who was working and paid out the $5 winnings remembered the man who had cashed in because the ticket was distinctively bent and was the only one of the seven that had been folded into what could have been a billfold. The clerk's name was Angie, and she recalled that the man who had cashed in the ticket between 8 and 10 a.m. on Sunday morning was unpleasant, dirty, and scruffy. She agreed to be hypnotized at state police headquarters, and she gave a statement under hypnosis. I'm reading from the police report here. Quote, I was standing by the check stand when a man came in and asked if he could cash this lottery ticket. I asked Dennis, our manager, who stated it was okay. I then gave him $5. He walked over and picked up a pack of cigarettes and came back and bought them with the $5 I had just given him. The man had a runny nose and was wiping it with his right arm. The coat he was wearing was about thigh length and a cotton-like material. His hair was oily or dirty and short and stood up on his head. He was skinny and about five foot nine inches tall and had a couple days growth of beard. He was a dirty and unkempt person. His beard appeared to be a brownish black color and his hands were greasy like dirty. The result of Angie's description was the sketch of the skinny, unkempt white guy released to the media. Investigators also showed it to one of the witnesses who said he had seen a man in a car parked across from Jerry's house on the night of the murder, and he agreed it could be him. All in all, police received a number of tips from people who thought they knew someone who resembled the sketch or someone who had said something about a murder or acted suspiciously. They ran them all down. Many were eliminated because they had an alibi, were non-smokers, did not at all fit the suspect description, and so on. None of the tips seemed to lead anywhere. The sketch turned out to look very much like the suspect, but no one called in his name for reasons that will become apparent. There were some men whom police spoke to in the course of the investigation because they had some connection to Jerry. One of these was a man who kept beehives on her property with her permission. He would tend to his bees from time to time. His name was H. Habel, and when police talked to him, he seemed nervous and very anxious to stay as far away as possible from the investigation. Although a witness named Jody told police he drove past Jerry's house on Saturday the 27th and saw the beekeeper tending to the hives on the property, Habel maintained he was there on Friday, not Saturday. He had been keeping his hives on the property for six years, and he and Jerry always got along fine. She was a nice lady, he said. Another man police spoke to was Randall Pine, who had dated Jerry for a time, but the two were more like companions than romantic partners. They had broken it off because they attended separate churches and neither wanted to switch. But there was no animosity between them. Police notes indicate that Randall seemed genuinely shocked and dismayed about Jerry's murder. Within days of Jerry's murder, investigators hearkened back to another unsolved murder that had rattled the community just two years earlier. Eugene Police and the Oregon State Police began working together to consider whether the slayings of Jerry Tuohy and Gladys Hensley could be related. There were an awful lot of similarities between the two cases. Both involved vulnerable older women who lived alone. Both involved forced entry. Both victims were stabbed, violently strangled, and beaten. Both victims were sexually assaulted. Both victims were robbed. And the two women lived 6.2 miles from each other, both in areas adjacent to the Willamette River, 
where transients were known to congregate and near busy roadways. Police also had shoe prints from both scenes that seemed to match up. Despite all these parallels, police would not shed any light as to whether they had drawn any conclusions about the connectivity of the cases. The state police would not comment, and Detective Sergeant Rick Gilliam, head of the Eugene Police Homicide Unit, would say only, quote, There's nothing we can hang our hat on at this point. Isn't that such a quaint, old-timey expression? Anyway, a March 10, 1988 article stated that police had traveled out of state to talk to one potential suspect in Jerry's case, but he had not panned out. Weeks into the investigation, there were no suspects. There would not be any significant discussion of the case in the media for four more years. In 1992, the state police undertook a review of Jerry Tuohy's murder case. Jerry's daughter Beverly had made a big push to have her mom's case reinvestigated since it seemed to have been sitting stagnant for four years. Beverly told the register guard, quote, The person who did this has probably not done this just once. I'd like to see that person punished. She had no idea how right she was. Beverly contacted local media as well as national shows such as Unsolved Mysteries because she believed that her mom's killer was someone passing through the area, not a local resident. She was wrong about that part. In connection with the 1992 review, Oregon State Police Detective Gus Bradford pointed out that the suspect was in the area long enough to scope out Jerry's house. It was felt that he might have been watching it, looking for an easy target. Police were confident that he knew Jerry lived alone. He undertook enough planning to cut the phone and CB wires, but was also careless, leaving shoe prints and some fingerprints and cashing in the raffle ticket. This suggested to detectives that the killer was young, impulsive, and unable to control himself or his excitement. Beverly told the paper that she had nightmares for a year after her mom died. She had no weapons, nothing to protect herself. As far as we know, she had no enemies. I'd like to catch that person and find out why, she said. Sadly, Beverly passed away in 2010. She never would have the answers she sought for so many years. Investigators say that from the beginning, there was suspicion that all three cases, Gladys, Janice, and Jerry, were related. All three women were in close geographic proximity, and all three died due to very similar brutal violence. All the crimes appeared to be crimes of opportunity, and two of them featured breaking and entering. And of course, all three victims were sexually assaulted. So, in August of 2000, the sexual assault kits from all three cases were sent to the OSP crime lab for analysis and comparison. The simultaneous testing was done deliberately, OSP detective Dusty Sprague tells me. And sure enough, the testing by the OSP lab provided scientific proof of the connectivity of the cases. The DNA profiles obtained from each of the sexual assault kits were identical and confirmed investigators' hunches that the same man had killed Gladys, Janice, and Jerry. Now police had more to go on than just suspicions based on the common M.O. of rape, strangulation, and stabbing that the cases were related. They had forensic proof. But the knowledge that they were dealing with a serial offender didn't get them any closer to actually finding out who he was. There were no hits and codas to the suspect. And various persons of interest who had popped up over the years, another killer in the Eugene area and men whose names appeared in the case file, were all eliminated by DNA comparison. Investigators were left scratching their heads once again. Fast forward nearly two decades. This is one of the earliest cases in which Parabon's snapshot phenotyping was utilized. Incredibly, as Dr. Ellen Graytech explained in a 2018 press conference about the new technology, 
they only needed one nanogram of the unknown suspect's DNA to be able to generate the phenotype to determine his physical characteristics and genetic heritage. Graytax said, quote, It's about a 30th of what you would get just from taking a sip out of a water bottle and swabbing that bottle. Parabon introduced this new technology in 2016, and the Eugene and Oregon state investigators took advantage of it. They received the results in fall of 2017, but waited until 2018 to publicize the results in hopes of generating tips. Detective Jennifer Curry, a Eugene Police Department Violent Crimes Unit investigator, had recently taken on the case, and she and OSP Detective Dusty Sprague held a press conference revealing that the Tuhi, Hensley, and Dickinson cases were all perpetrated by one man. At this, they introduced the computer-generated image of the suspect, a white male with fair skin, blue or green eyes, and brown hair. His face shape, according to the image, was on the longer side with a somewhat pointy chin. His ancestry was Northern European. The press conference was attended by some family members of the victims, such as Janice Dickinson's sister Kay Mescal, who said of the new development, quote, It brings everything back up, you know, because it doesn't ever really go away. You just find a way to just, you know, deal with it day to day. Both families and investigators were hopeful that the image of the suspect would generate the one tip they needed most, his name. The Eugene PD set up a dedicated tip line for people to call in if they had even the slightest bit of information. This from a later press release, quote, More than 100 tips were received and followed up on by violent crimes unit detectives, but all of the names provided were eliminated as suspects. It was time for the next step. Parabon introduced its new forensic genealogy services in May 2018, and the Eugene investigators were eager to take it to the next level. After all, if they could just find out who this guy was, it would solve at least three cold cases. Parabon found that the suspect had some distant relatives in Jedmatch, and they produced their report for the investigators with their findings. Finally, in February of 2022, it was publicly announced that Parabon had been able to provide investigators with a list of just four names, all of whom could be the male suspect based on age, location, and their places in the family tree. The names were three brothers and their father. It was felt that the father was a less likely candidate as he was born in 1932 and would have been in his 50s when Jerry, Gladys, and Janice were slain, whereas his three sons, born in the 50s, were much more likely candidates since they would have been in their 20s or early 30s. But, of course, it was theoretically possible that he was the killer, so he had to remain on the list of possible suspects until he was eliminated. He had been deceased since 1994, though, so he would have to be ruled out by testing his sons. Armed with this list of four names from within one immediate family, the Eugene investigators started knocking on doors, collecting DNA, and conducting STR testing to rule out some of the names on the list. They started with two of the brothers, who were both still alive, and they were cooperative and gave DNA samples. The DNA testing ruled out the living brothers and also told the DNA analysts that their father could also be eliminated. From my understanding, this determination is based on comparing the shared genetic markers of full siblings, which can then be used to infer that the unknown suspect is another full sibling rather than a parent, based on genetic markers in common. Eliminating the two living brothers and the father left the last brother who was deceased. His name was John Charles Bolsinger, and he was the killer of Jerry, Janice, and Gladys. 
John Charles Bolsinger was born in 1957 to parents David Claire Bolsinger and Marguerite Peggy Frost. His father, David Bolsinger, was the only child born to Sylvester Dale Bolsinger and Marion Coffell Hart. The genealogists could find no matches from the killer's mother's side of the family in the database. It turns out that John Charles Bolsinger's mother, Peggy, was from the UK. She met her husband, David, over in England when he was stationed there with the Air Force and moved to Oregon to marry him. So Peggy's ancestors did not appear in the U.S.-based genealogy database. But the genealogists were able to find matches on both sides of the killer's paternal grandparents' family lines, those of Sylvester and Marion. So they knew the killer had to be among the descendants of this couple. And their son, David Clare Bolsinger, had no siblings, and if his wife Peggy had some, they were over in the U.K. What this meant was that the list of names descended from Sylvester and Marion, who could be the killer, was either David Bolsinger or one of his three sons. As I said, the other two sons were eliminated based on testing. David was also eliminated. And once they got the list down to just John Charles Bolsinger, they had all they needed, as he had quite a record. So what do we know about John Charles Bolsinger? He was born on September 17, 1957, to 25-year-old father David Clare Bolsinger, who served in the Air Force in Korea, and 27-year-old mother Marguerite Nancy Frost, a native of England who went by near her nickname Peggy. His parents were stationed in California when his older brother was born in 1954, but by the time John was born, they had relocated to Seattle. They ended up back in Oregon, where David was originally from. Bolsinger, too, spent the majority of his life in Oregon. Bolsinger married a woman named Shirley on September 5, 1980, in his home state. They didn't have any children, and I don't know anything about their relationship. In fact, we really don't know much about Bolsinger's life. Detective Sprague from the OSP told me that he worked intermittently as a handyman, but based on the description given of him by the witnesses who described him as dirty and unkempt, and that he was known to do drugs, it seems he was basically a transient. He also had a criminal record from a young age. Police in 2022 were not able to access his juvenile records, so we don't know what he did before he reached the age of majority. But from 1975 on, he had a history of interactions with law enforcement in Eugene and in wider Lane County for property crimes and other infractions like disorderly conduct, forgery, traffic violations, possession of marijuana, and shoplifting. One thing we do know was that a mugshot of him shows that he was a dead ringer for the sketch that had been produced in 1988. And another thing we know, by the age of 23, Bolsinger developed from a minor criminal into a bad, bad dude who committed a violent crime unrelated to the Tuohy, Hensley, and Dickinson cases, but which bore some marked similarities to those murders. Let's talk about the Casey Sorensen case. This directly from the court record. On March 29, 1980, 33-year-old Casey Sorensen was found dead by her boyfriend, Mark Anger, in his Salt Lake City, Utah apartment at 8044 West 3500 South. Mark had given Casey permission to stay in his apartment while he was at work. When he returned from a 24-hour shift as a firefighter, Mark found Casey lying spread-eagled on the bed, all but her legs covered with a sheet. The cord of a clock radio resting on the bed was loosely tied around her neck. The living room seemed to indicate that a burglary had taken place. The contents of Casey's purse were scattered on the floor, a lamp was knocked over, and Mark's expensive stereo was missing. 
The whole thing was initially assumed to have been a burglary turned into a rape and murder, but it turned out Casey had brought her killer home with her. At least, that was the story he told. Casey had last been seen alive on the night of March 28, 1980, in Bill's Lounge in Magna, where she was a regular customer. She arrived there in a state of intoxication around 8 p.m., the court record reflects. She sang along with a jukebox, danced by herself on the dance floor, and, quote, tried to kiss a lot of guys on the cheek up and down the bar. Unfortunately for Casey, one of the men at Bill's Lounge that night was 22-year-old John Charles Bolsinger. He was living at 2661 8560 West at the time. According to the court record, Casey watched Bolsinger when he came into the bar around 9 p.m. and approached him as he played pool. They flirted and kissed and left the bar together shortly before 10 p.m. The next day, Casey was found dead. Patrons at the bar knew Bolsinger and told police that Casey had left with him. Bolsinger was arrested at his home by an officer Beckstead at about noon on April 1, 1980. He agreed to go with Beckstead to the Metropolitan Hall of Justice and submit to a polygraph. The test results showed deception. Bolsinger was charged with second-degree murder and booked into the Salt Lake County Jail. Now, Bolsinger is said to have confessed to investigators in the early morning hours of April 2nd. It has to be said, though, that at least one of the appellate judges considering this case later would infer from the facts on record that his confession was at least, in part, elicited by threats from the detectives and the terrible conditions he was subjected to in jail. But even if Bolsinger was coerced into confessing, it's pretty clear that he did it. Anyway, apparently in the middle of the night when he was in the area of the jail referred to by the racist term the Chinese hole, which was later ruled to be cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Constitution, Bolsinger cracked. At 3 a.m., he told the guard he was ready to talk. When he sat down with detectives, he proceeded to tell the following story, again from the record, although I am paraphrasing at times. Bolsinger and Casey met at Bill's Lounge. They drove to his home where they picked up a bottle of whiskey and then continued to Casey's boyfriend Mark's apartment. They played records on the stereo, danced, and drank straight from the bottle for about an hour. Both were quite intoxicated. They then went to the bedroom, partially undressed, lay down on the bed, and eventually engaged in sexual intercourse with Bolsinger on top. When he was still on top of her, Casey expressed that she was dissatisfied with the sex. He grabbed the clock radio and put the cord around her throat. The couple resumed intercourse. He felt Casey move around, opened his eyes, and saw the cord around her neck and pulled it. He said he pulled like, quote, tying your shoes for about 15 to 20 seconds, reached a climax and relaxed, still on top of Casey, and then rolled off to the side. When he looked at her a few moments later, he noticed that Casey's face looked strange, like not awake or reacting. He got scared, got up, picked up his clothes, went into the living room, dressed, and walked back into the bedroom. Casey hadn't moved. Bolsinger put a sheet over her, picked up his whiskey bottle, returned to the living room, dumped the contents of her purse but found no money, and left the apartment with the expensive stereo in hand. The confession included the following exchange between Bolsinger and one of the detectives. Question. What did Casey do when you put the cord around her neck? Answer. Nothing. She just laid there. She wasn't really all the way passed out, but she was more or less, I guess. I just started pulling on it. It only seemed like just a second, and then it was over. Question. Do you think she knew what was going on? Answer. I hope not. I don't know. I just hope not. Question. Did she fight back? Answer. No. Question. Do you know why it happened? 
Answer, wish I did. Question, have you ever been involved in anything else like this before? Answer, never, not even close, never even hurt any, hurt anybody before. Bolsinger's murder trial before Judge David D. lasted for two weeks. The defendant took the stand in his own defense and testified about meeting Casey in a bar in Magna and them going to her boyfriend's apartment together. But he said that he lied to police in his taped confession. On the stand, he said he and Casey had been engaging in sex play and she had asked him to put the cord around her neck and pull it. She held the cord out to him and told him to pull it, he testified. Basically, Bolsinger was setting up a defense that the ligature strangulation was a consensual sex act and the death was accidental. He denied saying that Casey had been indignant about being dissatisfied and said no, he didn't get mad and kill her on purpose. The state's medical examiner, Dr. J. Wallace Graham, who did the autopsy on Casey, testified that in his expert opinion she was murdered and the cause of death was strangulation by ligature. He testified that he found ligature abrasions encircling the victim's neck, scratches on her right cheek consistent with fingernails, bruises on the back of the left hand and top of her right foot, and hemorrhages in the skin around her eyes, chin, and in front of the right ear. Dr. Graham observed that an intoxicated person would succumb more quickly than a sober one, and Casey's blood alcohol level was 0.22. The pressure on her neck would slow the heart and respiration and cut off the blood supply to the brain compounding the factors contributing to the fatality. He estimated that, with the ligature applied, unconsciousness would result within 5 to 10 seconds, and death would result in anywhere from 30 seconds to 2 and a half minutes. To contradict the medical examiner's testimony, Dr. Boyd Stevens, a coroner from San Francisco, testified for the defense that the death was accidental. He talked about the new trend of enhancing sexual pleasure through oxygen deprivation during intercourse. He said the pulling of the cord around Casey's neck, plus compression to her chest caused by the defendant sitting on it, likely caused unanticipated heart failure. He did not think the choking alone would have killed her, hence his conclusion that it was an accident. The medical examiner had to agree that the chest compression had contributed to Casey's death, and both doctors agreed that there was no trauma to Casey's private areas or thighs and no injury or other evidence indicating a struggle between the couple. The victim had no significant injuries, just a few small scratches, abrasions, and bruises, although it was acknowledged that she had petechial hemorrhaging in the places noted in the autopsy. But the defense introduced evidence that the sex was consensual, such as the presence in the room of a catalog advertising sexual paraphernalia and the books The Joy of Sex and Super Sex on the nightstand by the bed. They pointed out that Casey was wearing a vaginal contraceptive at the time of her death. Her blood alcohol level of 0.22 showed that she was drunk, they said, which would hasten death. And there was no structural damage to her neck. The hyoid bone and larynx were still intact. There was also no evidence of furrowing on the skin of the throat or any indication that the cord was ever knotted or in a tied position. Then, in what really came across as victim-shaming, Casey's boyfriend, Mark Anger, who, the one who owned the apartment and found her body, testified that, well, and I'm quoting here because it's cringeworthy, quote, Casey had a drinking problem, that during her drinking sprees she would be very depressed, that she had been drinking shortly before her death, that she had to have sex all the time, and that she had difficulty achieving sexual gratification. He also admitted that he and Casey had explored some of the practices described in the literature, but never engaged in anything like that, referring to the ligature. 
Despite all these defense attempts to undercut the state's murder case, Bolsinger was convicted of murder on March 6, 1981. Judge D. sentenced him to five to life, plus a year in the Salt Lake City County Jail for stealing the stereo equipment. But it wasn't over, and that's why I had to go into such detail about the trial and Bolsinger's defense that he didn't mean or intend to kill Casey. He appealed, and in 1985, the Utah Supreme Court handed down a ruling in his favor. The court said, quote, His confession offers no clue or hint as to his mens rea, which is the mental state that goes to intent. What emerges instead is an identical mens rea under both versions. Both in the confession and at trial, the defendant denied having intended any harm. No words, angry or otherwise, were exchanged by the couple. Defendant was not mad. There was no struggle. He was on top of the victim when he pulled the cord for what may have been no more than 30 seconds. The physical evidence is undisputed with respect to the absence of a struggle and to the position of the defendant when he pulled on the cord. It must be assessed against the backdrop of a delicate situation which involved only the defendant in the consensual act of intercourse with a sexually sophisticated woman 10 years his senior. The physical evidence present in the bedroom, the testimony at trial attesting to her lack of sexual fulfillment, and the admission by her lover of two years, a witness for the state, that he and the victim had explored some of the suggestions found in the manuals, do not attest to the depraved act of a murderer. Both medical experts were in agreement that the strangulation was accomplished with little force and was enhanced by at least one other factor, the high alcohol content in the blood of the victim. Both medical experts agreed that the ligature marks were light, resulting from momentary pressure. So what the Supreme Court is saying is that the state failed to prove that Bolsinger had the intent to kill or cause great bodily harm, which is the state of mind required for a murder conviction. The ruling went on, quote, There is, however, sufficient evidence that the defendant was aware of, but consciously disregarded, a substantial and unjustifiable risk that placing and or pulling a cord around the victim's neck would result in her death. That risk was of such a nature and degree that its disregard constituted a gross deviation from the standard of care that an ordinary person would exercise under all the circumstances as viewed from the defendant's standpoint. Such conduct is reckless under Section 7621033. We hold that there is insufficient evidence to support a conviction for murder in the second degree as charged but there is sufficient evidence to support a conviction for the included offense of manslaughter. So, by a three-to-one decision, Bolsinger's murder conviction was reduced to manslaughter, an unlawful killing without premeditation or malice. His sentence was accordingly reduced, and he was set a parole date of April 8, 1986. He was actually paroled in March of 1986 and was permitted to return to Springfield, Oregon, where his father was living. If anyone has been paying close attention to the dates in this story, their ears will be perking up. After serving out his sentence for Casey's murder, his first known homicide, Bolsinger was released back to his hometown of Springfield, Oregon, on March 7, 1986. Gladys Hensley and Janice Dickinson were killed in Eugene in June 1986, just three months later. So Bolsinger killed Janice and Gladys just weeks apart, very soon after he was paroled. And it would not be long before he struck again, or at least attempted to. These details are all from a press release issued by the Eugene Police Department about an incident that they dug up when they were doing a background check on Bolsinger. 
On September 26, 1986, Springfield Police Patrol officers were dispatched to the 300 block of South 51st Place in response to a report of a burglary in progress. Upon arrival at the residence, officers could hear a woman screaming inside the house. Clearly terrified, she was able to tell them that she had been having trouble sleeping. She heard her dog making strange noises in the kitchen, so she went to investigate. All of the lights inside the house were off, but there was a light on outside at the rear sliding door. It illuminated the face of a man peering through her kitchen window. As she watched, the window slid open and the man reached inside and removed a brace in the slider. She ran back to the living room and called 911. While she was on the phone, the suspect climbed through the window and walked into the living room. He stood still for a moment and then approached her. She started screaming as he tried to pull the phone from her hand. She whacked him with a phone and a flashlight. The suspect fled through the kitchen window, leaving behind a down vest and a paring knife. Police had responded so quickly to the woman's call that they were able to send a canine unit out on the trail of the fleeing suspect, and they caught him. Who was it? John Charles Bolsinger. When he was questioned at the station, he claimed to have knocked on the door a few times and then walked away after receiving no response. No one bought that ridiculous story. After that, he claimed to be suffering from memory loss. He was arrested and charged for the burglary of the woman's home. I'd say she got very, very lucky. The aftermath of this arrest is a real head-scratcher. Bolsinger was convicted of the burglary and sentenced to five years in prison in the Oregon Department of Corrections. But after serving less than a year, on August 4, 1987, he was transferred to the Utah State Prison for a parole violation, which was caused by the Oregon burglary. He was incarcerated there until December 8, 1987, at which time he was released. Within days, he was back in Oregon and even made an attempt to get his life together by enrolling for the winter term at Lane Community College, a local school with campuses in Eugene and some other locations, on December 11th. As we all know, that didn't last. Geraldine Tuohy was attacked and killed in her home on February 28, 1988, by John Charles Bolsinger. He had been out of prison for just over two months. He clearly had learned a lesson from his failed September 1986 attack on the woman in her apartment who called 911 and hit him with the phone. Before he attacked Jerry, he cut the phone lines to her home so she could not call for help. Bolsinger got away with the murder of Jerry Tui, but it's not clear whether he knew that. As you'll recall, on March 5, 1988, the Oregon State Police released the sketch of the suspect created with the help of the scratch-off ticket clerk, Angie. The sketch quite closely resembles Bolsinger. As pointed out by authorities, the Tuohy case received a lot of publicity, and the sketch was featured on the news and in the local papers. It seems very likely that Bolsinger saw it, felt that it looked like him, and was concerned that his days of freedom were numbered. As a repeat offender with a violent criminal history, his sentence, if he were caught, was likely to be very harsh. Feeling as though the walls were closing in on him, we can imagine, on March 23, 30-year-old Bolsinger took his own life at his apartment, located in the 100 block of Mill Street in Springfield, Oregon. Now, while I was able to get the Oregon State Police to confirm for me that Bolsinger died of a drug overdose, I don't know how they know that it was deliberate. Perhaps he left a note, but if he did, it did not contain a confession. Or perhaps it was a deliberate overdose of pills. I just don't know. And Lane County will not release medical examiner reports to non-family members. 
Bolsinger's death was investigated by the Springfield PD because he lived in Springfield. Jerry Tuohy's death was investigated by the Oregon State Police as she lived in Glenwood. I do have to wonder whether anyone in law enforcement at the time considered whether Bolsinger could be a suspect in Jerry's murder when he was discovered having taken his own life just a few short weeks after her death. After all, he did look like the sketch, had a record for murder, and sometimes feelings of guilt can engender suicidal thoughts. But clearly the Springfield PD never compared notes with the Oregon State Police about any possible connection between the ex-con and Jerry, since Bolzinger's name never appears in the Tui case file or in those of Janice and Gladys either. When Bolzinger died, as a matter of routine, investigators took photos of the death scene and the interior of his apartment. Now, in 2022, reviewing those photos, Detective Curry noticed that in the closet, clear as day, was a Nike sneaker. Why did this matter? Well, it turns out that the FBI had done a footwear impression analysis after the Hensley murder, where the killer left shoe prints outside her window and in the apartment. They had concluded that the shoe worn by the killer was a certain style of Nike sneaker. And the Springfield police had retained photos and evidence from the burglary case, the one where the woman fought the intruder off with her phone after dialing 911. The photos showed a very clear shoe print in the kitchen sink below the window Bolsinger had opened. He had stepped through and stepped right into the sink. The shoe prints were comparable to the shoes in the Hensley case. Finally, they had multiple sneaker prints from the dirt outside Jerry's house. These shoes were the same style that was visible in Bolsinger's closet. They didn't have the shoe in evidence to test, but it was good circumstantial evidence that Bolsinger was the killer of all three women. I asked for a statement from the Eugene Police Department, which declined to talk to me about this case, clarifying how exactly they confirmed 100% that their killer was John Charles Bolsinger. He didn't have any children, and he had been dead for so many years, I think it's extremely unlikely that any of his relatives or his wife maintained anything with his DNA on it. I didn't see any references at all to an exhumation. I believe that what they did was rely on the genetic testing that showed, based on the number of shared genetic markers, that his brothers were full siblings to the killer. But it's also possible that Bolsinger was autopsied and samples such as a blood card were taken at that time. If that was done, it could be compared against the DNA now for a decisive match. As I said, there was plenty of circumstantial evidence that Bolsinger was their guy. As Detective Curry told the register guard, quote, We obviously didn't just use DNA in this case. There was footwear analysis and fingerprint analysis. I've already talked about the shoes found in Bolsinger's closet seen in photos decades later that were consistent with the shoes that left prints at so many of the murder scenes. I don't understand the fingerprints, though. I'm assuming that what Detective Curry meant was that after they received the tip with Bolsinger's name from Parabon, they pulled his prints from his lengthy arrest file and compared them to some of the prints found at one or more of the three crime scenes. But my question is, why wasn't that done in the 80s? Why weren't any prints lifted from the three murder scenes run against the computerized database of arrestee prints? If that had been done, surely those of John Bolsinger, convicted of the murder of Casey Sorensen, would have come up. So how did John Bolsinger come across his victims? We just don't know how he selected his targets. It seems Casey was just luck he met her at a bar. Janice, it seems, came across him somehow when she was walking or in a bar that night. The other two, Gladys and Jerry, it's pretty clear he selected them because they lived alone and were vulnerable. Detective Curry has stated, quote, 
We still to this day have not identified any relationship he would have had to them, referring to his three Oregon victims. Detective Sprague told me he believes all Bolsinger's victims were simply targets of opportunity, random women who were alone and defenseless. In conclusion, here are some excerpts from a press release dated February 2022 announcing the closure of this case. The Eugene Police Department and the Oregon State Police are pleased to finally bring closure to the family members of Gladys, Janice, and Geraldine, as well as our community. Both agencies remain committed to constantly evaluating unsolved crimes and utilizing emerging technologies to bring closure to other families of crime victims. This resolution would not have been possible without the dedication of numerous police officers, detectives, crime scene investigators, and crime lab analysts over the last 35 years. After 36 and 38 years, the cases of Jerry Tui, Gladys Hensley, and Janice Dickinson are closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you to OSP Detective Dusty Sprague for speaking with me about this case. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNA ID Podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. Hello, and welcome to Cause of Death. My name is Jackie Moranti. I've been studying infectious disease for 14 years in various research settings. I have a Bachelor's of Science from Colorado State University in Microbiology, Immunology, and Virology. I've worked with diseases like tuberculosis, SARS-1, and SARS-CoV-2, better known as COVID-19, and I've worked with EHV-1. It's my feeling that if we look back at the pandemics of the past, we may be able to better handle the pandemics of the future. The problem is, we have to learn our lessons first. Come along with me while I tell you about the pandemics, the epidemics, and the outbreaks, and how we never seem to learn our lessons.